Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity in New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm very excited to share this interview with you all. I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. South Asia's Christians Between Hindu and Muslim, written by Chandra Malampali and published by Oxford University Press in 2023, is a broad, accessible overview of South Asian Christianity that which takes heed of stories of South Asia's Christians and shows how their faith has been shaped by Christians' locations between Hindus and Muslims. Chandra Malampali begins with a discussion of South India's ancient Thomas Christian tradition, which interacted with West Asia's Persian Christians and thrived for centuries alongside their Hindu and Muslim neighbors. He then underscores the efforts of Roman Catholic and Protestant missionaries to understand South Asian societies for purposes of conversion. The publication of books and tracts about their religions, interreligious debates, and aggressive preaching were central to these endeavors, but rarely succeeded in yielding converts. Instead, they played an important role in producing a climate of religious competition, which ultimately marginalized Christians in Hindu, Muslim, and Buddhist-majority countries of post-colonial South Asia. Ironically, the greatest response to Christianity came from poor and oppressed Dalit and tribal communities who were largely indifferent to missionary rhetoric. Their mass conversions, poetry, theology, and an embrace of Pentecostalism are essential for understanding South Asian Christianity and its place within world Christianity today. Over the course of our conversation, we'll take a closer look at this important work and how this book sets out to make a significant contribution to scholars and students of world Christianity. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned, and we hope you enjoy the book and our conversation as well. Today, we are privileged to talk with Chandra Malampali, the author of South Asia's Christians Between Hindu and Muslim. Chandra Malampali is professor 
of History at Westmont College, where he holds the Fletcher Jones Chair of the Social Sciences. His scholarship and teaching span the fields of modern South India, British Empire, world history, and world Christianity. Prior to earning his PhD, Chandra studied theology and worked as a journalist in South Asia as well. Chandra is also the author of numerous books and peer-reviewed journal articles, which examines the intersection of religion, law, and society in colonial South India. And to mention some of Chandra's publication, he has written A Muslim Conspiracy in British India, Politics and Paranoia in the Early 19th Century Deccan, published by Cambridge University Press in 2017, Race, Religion, and Law in Colonial India, published by Cambridge University Press in 2011, Christians and Public Life in Colonial South India, published by Rutledge Kurzon in 2004, and a journal article titled A Fondness for Military Display, Conquest, and Intrigue in South India during the First Anglo-Afghan War, 1839-1840, to published in the Journal of Asian Studies in 2018. In 2021-2022, Chandra was also an inaugural young visiting scholar of world Christianity at Harvard Divinity School, where he taught seminars on religious conversion in South Asia and Asia and world Christianity. So welcome, Dr. Malampali, to New Books in World Christianity. And thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about your book. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, as we begin, um, I would like to first say congratulations, Dr. Malampali, for publishing this very cutting edge work. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that this book is hot off the press and our listeners will be ha- able to have access to your book right away. And, and I also believe that this is your fourth single authored monograph. Am I, am I correct, Dr. Malampali? That is correct. I'm a sucker uh, for punishment. Well, once again, my sincere congratulations on this new book. Um, Before we dive into the contents of your book, I think it'll be great if we can start off today's conversation by learning more about you. Um, So Dr. Malampali, do you mind um, saying a few words about yourself? That is, you know, where you grew up, you know, where you did your PhD and you know, how you became interested in your field of study. And in your answer, do please feel free to mention any influential interlocutors that have, you know, shaped your academic journey. Yes, well, thanks so much. I am the youngest child of uh, four siblings. My parents are immigrants from South India, from the Telugu-speaking state of Andhra Pradesh, Uh, They came to the United States in the late 50s, and we settled in Wisconsin. So I grew up in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. I eventually did my my doctoral work at the University of Mm Wisconsin-Madison, where I studied under Robert Frickenberg, who is an outstanding scholar of Mm -hmm. uh, Indian Christianity. I was a project assistant for Bob Frickenberg uh, for his project on uh, Christianity in India since 1500. And so that project exposed me to outstanding scholars in the field of not only South Asia, but also global Christianity. Mm -hmm. 
some of my uh, heroes that uh, were very formative during my grad school years are, of course, uh, professors Lamansane and Andrew Walls, mm -hmm. whose work on uh, the pioneering work on global Christianity continue to be uh, among my important interlocutors. Mm -hmm. The issues of translatability and the radical cultural pluralism of Christianity is really underscored in their work. Bob Frickenberg is also in the mix. He really uh, emphasizes the importance of looking at history from below, from the people on the ground. And I would add to that mix uh, Professor Richard Young at, uh, at Princeton Seminary, who has been hugely influential and has been like a mentor to me over, over the years. And it's been great to keep in touch with both Richard and Bob, uh, even uh, to this present day. Mm -hmm. Uh, thank you uh, for enlightening us with some of your heroes and your journey and also your your personal history as well. Um, one of the great benefits of podcast interviews is to, you know, listen to what goes on also beyond the corners of the book. And at this time, um, Dr. Malinpali, I would like to kind of invite you to tell us more about how you came to write this important work, you know, South Asia's Christians between Hindu and Muslim, you know, it says yeah. in the preface that this book is a product of decades of, you know, engagement with the history of Christianity in South Asia. So um, how did this process begin? You know, what kind of what things led you to writing this monograph? Certainly. It's been a long-standing curiosity uh, of mine to understand how Christians have interacted with adherents of other religions in South Asia. South Asia is the home of the great religions of the world, and Christians have a very deep history in that part of the world. So I've, I've always kept coming back to the study of Christian interactions and interreligious debates and encounters. I should also add that I wrote this book at the behest of Professor Laman Sane, who was editing a series for Oxford University Press on world Christianity. And he asked me to write the South Asia uh, volume for this, uh, the, for this series. So I envisioned the book as certainly a contribution to world Christianity studies, but also to uh, the study of South Asia. I'm hoping that somebody could read this book and really understand some of the major tropes of South Asian history mm -hmm. and also um, become exposed to the South Asia component of global Christianity or world Christianity. Of course. Well, thank you for um, sharing some of your thoughts, um, your journey that went into uh, writing this monograph. Um, and as we open the pages of your book, we can see that there are a total of 10 chapters, uh, plus an introduction and a conclusion. And it entails maps and pictures, which you know also help readers better understand the context of which you, know, you are treating. And just to quickly point out for our listeners, um, this book is al also includes an extensive 22-page bibliography at the end, which I hope our listeners can take note of. And you know, it will be an incredible resource for further studies, you know, in regards to Christians in South Asia. Um, and it is in the introductory chapter of your book, Dr. Malin Pali, that you provide the readers with some of the foundation and context of your study about what it is you want to accomplish through your work, and that is to examine, quote, South Asia's Christians and how they have profoundly shaped and been shaped 
by the Hindu and Muslim environments in which they thrived, end quote. And here, when you refer to South Asia, even though you spotlight the stories arising from the many different South Asian contexts, you know, you pull out a lot of attention to the nation state of India, including the time periods that precede um, the drawing of na national borders as well. So from the story of the Thomas Christians and the arrivals of the Jesuits and the Protestant missionaries, you know, even to the stories of Dalit Christians, mm -hmm. You know, this book covers not only a very vast historical time frame going back centuries, but it also does a tremendous job in detailing, you know, the stories of tensions, the conflicts, the conversions, and most imp importantly, interactions, you know, that take place within the lives of the Christians in South Asia. Here, the word interaction, Dr. Malapali, is indeed a very helpful framework that you utilize in this book. Um, our listeners might assume that it might just be an interaction between Christianity and other religions, you know, more specifically the interactions between, you know, Christians and Muslims or Christians and Hindus, you know, or even interactions between different languages, you know, such as Sanskrit, Persian, and Arabic. So, you know, Dr. Malampali, do you mind explaining to our listeners how you use this term interaction, you know, in unraveling your work? You know, what do you wish to highlight when you refer to this word interaction that is very, you know, specific uh, to this piece, uh, to this work? Wow, well, what, what, a, what an excellent question. And thanks so much for uh, reading the, the introduction <laughs> of my book so, uh, so attentively. When I talk about interaction, first thing I'm referring to is the geography of South Asia, especially the Indian subcontinent, which mm -hmm. extends into the Indian Ocean. And that by itself uh, makes the study of South Asia a highly interactive history mm -hmm. because the uh, one, one coast of the Indian subcontinent faces Arabia and, mm -hmm. East, and East Africa. The other coast faces Southeast Asia, and then the Silk Roads connect uh, the subcontinent to, to Central Asia and Persia, mm -hmm. as well as to, to China. And so the study of South Asia cannot help but being highly interactive because this is a contact zone mm -hmm. between many different uh, classical traditions and many different uh, languages and, and, and civilizations. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, the study of Christianity becomes an interactive history. How does Christianity enter this theater of remarkable uh, convergence? Mm -hmm. And in my book, I define interaction, or I focus on a certain, certain dimensions of interaction, mm -hmm. namely knowledge production, debate, and conversion. Mm -hmm. And these are the three uh, venues that I use as inroads into this interactive history. Knowledge production, how did Christians accumulate information about South Asian society, especially other religions? Mm -hmm. Sometimes, quite often, they worked with local intermediaries, and they compiled books, tracts, treatises about India's religions, India's cultures, and um, Debate was another aspect of interaction that's highly significant. The uh, debates really tap into a long tradition in India of hosting debates between mm -hmm. different sectarian traditions. And this really comes out in Professor uh, uh, Richard Young's work. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And uh, so there is a section of the book that is really devoted to looking at these exchanges between uh, Jesuits and uh, Muslims, the Jesuits and Hindus, mm -hmm. uh, Protestants and uh, Hindus and Muslims. And so you have these, these traditions of argument and debate that um, are not only traditions that Christians have observed in their own training back in Europe, but they're also traditions that Muslims have maintained in their palaces, in their, uh, their court complexes, their uh, religious context, the religious institutions. They've invited members of other traditions to come and debate the merits of the Quran versus other religious texts. And it's a very long-standing Indian tradition as well to host debates between different, uh, different traditions. So what happens when the argumentative uh, Christian meets the argumentative Indian or the argumentative Muslim? It's, it's really quite uh, an intellectual feast to look at these, these encounters. And that's what I hope readers will find very informative. There are many other kinds of interaction that we could talk about. Conquest is a form of interaction, and I do talk mm -hmm. about imperial conquests mm -hmm. in South Asia. And um, interaction doesn't presume that the interaction is always friendly <laughs> and is always uh, amicable or proceeds from mutual understanding or respect. Sometimes interactions are very abrasive, mm -hmm. and that comes out in the book as well. Of course. I really appreciated this word because, you know, it really gives you kind of a key to a big map. And I mm -hmm. think um, understanding where you, how you utilize these, um, you know, interactions, I think will help the readers, you know, kind of digest better the contents right. of this vast uh, historical, you know, frame time period. And you know, in thinking about that too, um, frameworks and tools, just a quick follow-up question, if I may, Dr. Malampali, and I was wondering if you would like to briefly speak on the world Christianity paradigm, as you mentioned yeah. in the introduction as well. You know, you are very well aware that, you know, yeah. world Christianity or global Christianity, you know, has not only been an emerging, you know, field of study with, you know, the giants that you mentioned, Andrew Walls, Laman Sane, you know, who have paved the way, you know, for scholars and students of world Christianity or global Christianity to follow in their footsteps. But also, you know, this is a global phenomenon, you know, which has drawn a lot of attention to the non-Western Christianity's growth in the global South. Um, one thing that I'm really appreciated is that you add section on Pentecostalism at the end too, which has had been a really vibrant, a part of, you know, world Christianity or global Christianity. As you specifically ad address South Asia's Christians in your book, Dr. Malampali, how do you see your work broadly contributing, you know, to the world Christianity discourse, you know, especially in being conscious also of the critics of the world Christianity paradigm? So the world Christianity paradigm that you're referring to is really centered on what uh, scholars like Dana Robert have mm -hmm. called the demographic shift of the world's Christian population to the global South. And so Christianity now prevails in mm -hmm. Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Latin America, and parts of Asia. Mm -hmm. This is a hugely significant transformation over the last 40, 40 years. This, yeah. this demographic change has happened. But one of the uh, 
regions of the world that is largely omitted from the discussion of this demographic transformation is South Asia. And that's because Christians in South Asia continue to represent a small minority of the populations of India, Nepal, Bhutan, um, Sri Lanka, and the other countries. Whereas Christians in, uh, in nearly 30 African countries represent the majority. They, they are a majority religion in, in African countries. They are a significant presence in South Korea, as, as we know, mm -hmm. and a very significant, rapidly growing presence in, in parts of China. And so it's quite understandable that world Christianity literature is going to focus on regions of the world that are undergoing uh, explosive growth in, in churches and in, in numbers of Christians. But that doesn't mean it's, it's not important to look at Christians in regions where Christians are minorities, hmm. because the, we can, we have, there's much to learn about Christianity when it is um, a minority uh, faith that is that is drawn into constant interactions with dominant religious traditions mm -hmm. and that's uh, part of what we get from the uh the story of south christians in south asia yeah. is is the uh the stories of christians who who currently live under enormous duress yeah. and are subject to vilification for not being uh authentic uh, indians or sri lankans are subject to violence and uh, are forced to give an account of themselves constantly and to show that, no, we're, we're citizens of the soil like everyone else. We, 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 we've, we go back generations and we have this rich history. So that's one aspect of uh, how South Asia is important to world Christianity is the, the, the status of, of being a minority religion is very important. The other thing that I would mention is that South Asia displays something unique in the history of Christianity, mm -hmm. and that is this rather poignant gap between the, uh, the knowledge-producing enterprise of missionaries, the books, the treatises, the tracts, the translations of the Bible, the grammars, the orthographies, this, this knowledge that is produced by missionaries was so abundant in South Asia. Uh, in the case of Protestantism, aided by their printing presses, they produce an abundance of knowledge. And not to mention their educational institutions, the schools um, that, were, that were established to draw the educated classes primarily uh, of India to these schools in order to turn them into Christians. Mm -hmm. But this knowledge-producing apparatus was not largely instrumental in producing Christians. <laughs> the vast majority of Christians in South Asia come from highly oppressed and marginal groups of people. And these people would have benefited from Bible translations, no question about it. Bible translations and um, the, the process of translating the message as Sane has, has written about mm -hmm. was, is very applicable to Northeast India and the peoples of Nagaland, Mizoram and other places. Mm -hmm. But by and large, uh, most Dalits, um, these are people that were formerly referred to as untouchables, were largely indifferent to Alexander Duff's treatise on um, the, the errors of Hinduism mm -hmm. or the, uh, the, the mistakes of the Quran. That's not why people, that's not why Dalits became Christians, because they read these big treatises. Um, those, that knowledge producing apparatus was uh, 
epistemologically in a very different place mm-hmm. from where um, most people who became Christians were. And that is something that needs to be looked at very carefully in world mm-hmm. Christianity studies is how the mental mapping, the imagination mm-hmm. of the West, um, th- there is a rupture between that mapping and the actual, the, the actual people. The last thing I would say about the world Christianity paradigm is that there was explosive conversion in South Asia mm-hmm. in the mass movements of conversion that actually go back 100 and 150 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and they predate the explosive, explosive growth that we see in sub-Saharan Africa and other parts of the global South. So in some ways, um, Christianity in South Asia is a precursor to global Christianity because of this mm. uh, rapid accession to yeah. the Christian fold that took place in the mass movements. But in more recent years, that growth has stalled and what you see is um, a resurgence of Hinduism, a resurgence of, yeah. of more assertive Buddhism. Yeah. And so that's why I think um, we need to bring South Asia into the world Christianity debate, into the mm-hmm. forefront of that world Christianity debate. Mm-hmm. Wow, excellent answer. And thank you for, for enlightening us in your understanding and perspective on why South Asia's Christians matter, especially in the world Christianity discourse. Um now, continuing on into the contents of your book, uh, Dr. Malampali, the first chapter is titled The Thomas Christians, you know, Paradoxes of Being Pre-European. It focuses on the story of the Martoma Syrian Church, you know, for those just tuning in our, to our World Christianity podcast and new to the Thomas Christians, you know, they trace their origins from Jesus's Apostle Thomas, who is believed to have traveled to India around 52 CE, where he converted many locals. And, you know, Dr. Malampali, here you persuasively argue that the story of the Thomas Christians is, quote, central to that of Indian Christianity and provides important insights into India's history more broadly, end quote. In this chapter, you peel, you know, the multi-layered story of the Thomas Christians, you know, the legend of St. Thomas himself, the Thomas Christians ties to Persia, and the legends of the East, you know, uh, and, and the Church of the East, excuse me, and how uh, Thomas Christians came to be referred to as the Syrian Christians, and even how Portuguese Catholics and British evangelicals attempted, you know, to westernize, you know, the Thomas Christians themselves. But what I found very interesting here in this chapter is the section on how Thomas Christians, you know, adapted and in a way repositioned themselves in light of the explosive growth of Islam. I think this was quite fascinating because of my own personal interest of Islam as well. Mm -hmm. But I was wondering if you could expound more on what accompanied, you know, the change, for example, their identity, you know, for the Thomas Christians and their interactions um, taking place during this period of, you know, Islamization and the Mm -hmm. growth of maritime spice trade. Right. So excellent question. And uh, that's a very important uh, place to start a book is talking about the oldest Christian tradition (laughs) of South Asia, which are the Thomas Christians. They are so important because their presence in India predates the arrival of Islam in South Asia, Mm -hmm. uh, predates the beginnings of Islam. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
And so uh, it also predates the arrival of Europeans. So nobody can say that, wow, Christianity is a colonial religion. It's, it's a colonial transplant. And uh, the other important uh, aspect of uh, the Thomas Christian tradition is their very extensive connections to West Asia. So they have this Indo-Persian connection. And a lot of times when people talk about Indo-Persian connection, they think about Indian Islam. Mm-hmm. because of the Persianized uh, influences that were brought by the Sufi, Sufi orders mm-hmm. and their connections to um, parts of, of, of Central and East Asia mm-hmm. uh, through, through the, uh, the, the trade routes. But the Syrian Christians or the Thomas Christians maintained this connection to the Church of the East mm-hmm. that was based in Tesiphon. And so this is a, another example of South Asia's connection to the world. Only it wasn't the world of Europeans. It was the world of West Asians mm-hmm. uh, or, or uh, Persians. The other aspect of the Thomas Christians that's very significant is that despite being connected to another part of the world, their uh, traditions took deep root in the cultural landscape of the Malabar coast and the, Mal- the interior, mm-hmm. which meant that they lived side by side with uh, local Hindu traditions and when, the, when Muslims began to arrive through trade in the Malabar coast, the Thomas Christians maintained peaceful relations with uh, the Muslims who used the coastal regions also to trade in spices yeah. and um, other important commodities uh, so, and, and made use of their connections to Arabia as well. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't this climate of religious competition Mm-hmm. Uh, for a very, very, for many centuries, there was this collaborative uh, spirit of coexistence between Hindus, um, Thomas Christians, and, and eventually Muslims. Mm-hmm. Uh, this seems to come undone with the arrival of the Portuguese yeah. in um, the, the, toward the tail end of the 15th century. Mm-hmm. The Portuguese are informed by their own um, uh, uh, conflicts with Muslims in the Iberian Peninsula. Mm-hmm. This is um, during the days of the Reconquista, mm-hmm. the, the purging of Muslims from the Iberian Peninsula, as well as Jews. And so the Portuguese have a clear idea in their mind of what a Muslim represents based on their, their experience. And they bring this, this, this hostility, this, this uh, antagonistic relationship with Islam mm-hmm. to, to India when they come and um, establish a colony in Goa. And they begin to develop rather antagonistic relations with um, not only Muslims, but also with Hindus, Mm -hmm. and also with the Thomas Christians. As you said in your question, Mm -hmm. they try to Latinize Mm -hmm. the Thomas Christians. The Thomas Christians say, Thomas is the one who founded our church, not Peter. (laughs) And the Thomas Christians are loyal to their patriarch, not Mm -hmm. to the Pope. They have their Syriac, Syriac rite, not the um, Latin rite, mm-hmm. and they were branded as Nestorians. Yeah. And Nestorius in the history of the church was someone who placed a strong emphasis on the humanity of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so um, they, they were, and, and other Oriental churches were dismissed by the Western church as being heretical. Mm-hmm. This uh, becomes a pretext for the Portuguese to actually access the pepper trade um, that uh, the the Thomas Christians really excelled in. 
And so by calling them heretics, they found an excuse to basically absorb them and to uh, bring them into the Catholic fold and also to gain access to the domains that the Thomas Christians controlled in the hinterland regions of South India. Mm. Uh, the explosive growth of Islam that you refer to in your question largely relates to the two uh, flanks of, of South Asia, the, yeah. the, Bengal, the Bengal Delta mm -hmm. in um, eastern India, and also Punjab mm -hmm. in northwestern India. These were regions of heavy Islamization. Mm -hmm. The South Indian Muslims or the Mapulas or the Tamil Muslims were uh, very ancient in terms of their presence in, mm -hmm. in, in South India, but they did not uh, represent a very, very large, um, you know, ex expansive type of a conversion that mm -hmm. you see in these other areas of India. Mm -hmm. So the relations between the Thomas Christians and the Mapulas uh, were, were largely, uh, they shared this common landscape. It's a scholar named Susan Bailey talks about saints, mm -hmm. goddesses, and kings, and how Christians and Muslims largely adapted to a culture that mm -hmm. was very, very um, shared, mm -hmm. a belief in the powers of holy men yeah. who had the powers to heal, the inclination to establish shrines uh, to um, these, uh, these renowned uh, saints. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the, the importance of religious sites and pilgrimages and relics, mm -hmm. uh, whether they are sacred crosses or whatever it might be. So it, they had the capacity to enjoy uh, a common cultural heritage and enjoy the patronage of South Indian kings. Mm -hmm. And that's what incorporated them into that landscape. Yeah. Well, thank you for that thorough answer, uh, Dr. Malapali. And I want to kind of uh, continue on as we have a lot to cover uh, yeah. for your book. But um, in thinking about the next two chapters, um, the next two chapters focus on Catholicism's encounter with South Asia um, around the time between, I, I'm roughly figuring it out as about 16th to up to 18th centuries. And chapter two, uh, prioritizes the story of the Jesuit mission to the court of the Mughals, the Islamicate empire that ruled India, you know, for several years, um, and its emperor, uh, Jala al-Din Muhammad Akbar, you know, whom the Jesuits tried, you know, arduously to convert to Christianity. You know, here we catch a glimpse of what I think you referred in the introductory uh, question that I asked about, you know, those the form of those interreligious interactions, you know, or to be more frank, the vigorous debates taking place between, you know, the Jesuit missionaries and the mullahs. Um, and in chapter three as well, centers on how the Roman Catholic Church has adapted to the social context of South India, you know, exploring its nature and extent and how Catholic Catholics became more incorporated into a cultural fabric shared with Hindus and Muslims. You know, even though there are many things we can talk about within these two chapters, what I found rather fascinating was the issue regarding cultural accommodation. You know, that is really a, really a hot issue when we talk about Catholic missions as well. Um, and in chapter three, you draw the reader's attention to Roberto di Nobili, and his missionary strategy, uh, which really puts this issue of cultural accommodation at the center stage. Um, so Dr. Malampali, for our future readers who might not yet be familiar with Nobili, 
um, or this concept of cultural accommodation. Do you mind explaining who he was, you know, um, his missionary strategy and, you know, some of the pushback he received, not only uh, from outside, but even within the other Catholics, you know, during this time period? Uh, so uh, Nobili was a uh, Jesuit missionary to a region of South India called Madurai, uh, for, the, the, the founder of the Madurai mission. He was from an elite uh, Italian background, and he came to South India and developed a principle called accommodatio or accommodation. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about cultural adaptation among Catholics, there is the doctrine of cultural adaptation that was mm-hmm. um, very influential in Jesuit approaches to China and, and to India. Okay. And uh, it is reflected in um, De Nobili assuming the, the clothing and the, the posture and the gestures of uh, Brahmins in, mm-hmm. in, in, in his interactions with South Indian Brahmins, the, mm-hmm. the members of the priestly caste. So De Nobili believed that you had to be all things to all people in order to win the few. And he tried to transform himself into a Brahmin. He he even presented himself as as somebody who was from the Brahmin caste in in Italy, of all things. Mm -hmm. And that uh, so that he would be heard by this elite group. And he had a trickle down notion of uh, of Christianization, that if you Christianize the Brahmins, it will have a broader impact. But there's another type of adaptation that has really nothing to do with De Nobili's doctrine of, adap- of, of accommodation. And that's the adaptation that happens naturally yeah. when there is no colonizing force that's creating a straitjacket for mm. Christianization. And so um, it's kind of like the force of gravity. <laughs> it pulls objects to the ground. Yeah. And so there is this cultural gravity in South Asia that makes anything that comes to South Asia adapt to the culture. Mm. And so the farther um, Jesuits and other uh, religious orders were from the colonial capital at Goa, the more adaptive Christianity became. It just became absorbed and and accommodated into uh, different forms. It it enjoyed the backing of of South Indian kings. The the Christians were able to... uh, perform their public festivals in the ways that Hindus and other traditions perform their public festivals. And so there wasn't a strong sense of, of, of difference. So these are the different examples of, of how accommodation takes place. Some of it takes place through this formal doctrine, and it actually creates quite a controversy within the ranks of, of Catholicism. Are they yeah. adapting too much? Mm. And are they crossing over too much to the, to the point of compromising Catholic doctrine? Mm-hmm. And uh, this becomes an ongoing tension in the history of the church in South India. Well, thank you for, for that detailed answer. Um, and in building on the notion now of interaction, which you know you covered earlier in our conversation, um, in chapter four titled Early European Encounters with India's Hindus and Muslims, you know, we shift gears now and witness the Protestant interactions with uh, South Asia. Uh, we just saw Catholics, but now we see uh, the Protestant interactions here. You seek to unpack the religious dimension, one that which involves early modern European involvement in South Asia and how they perceive the religions found in India. 
And I think what you seek to argue in this chapter is that, you know, missionaries were not just mere extensions of European empires, mm -hmm. but to shed light on the an overlooked element, one that which, you know, shows that the agendas of missionaries and colonialism were not always, you know, in agreement. Um, you know, if you look at world Christianity history, you know, there are cases like this, you know, in various contexts. But in doing so, Dr. Malampali, you bring into the limelight a German pietist missionary to South India by the name of Bartholomeus Ziegenbalg, who worked as a missionary in the context of European expansion, but did so in ways that were non-imperial or anti-imperial. Mm -hmm. So would you tell us more about this figure, Bartholomew Ziegenbalg, and, you know, the Trankabar mission that you talk yeah. about? Uh, what was Certainly. significant? Yeah, what was significant about Ziegenbalg and his work? Ziegenbalg is a hugely important figure in the history of, of, of missions in South Asia. Mm -hmm. And I would simply uh, also refer the listeners to the work of Daniel J. Raj, who is really the pioneer uh, of the study of Ziegenbalg and mm -hmm. his, um, his work in South India. Ziegenbalg was the first Protestant missionary to India. Mm -hmm. He uh, was deeply committed to knowledge production and accumulating knowledge of uh, Tamil and mm -hmm. the, uh, the gods of, of South India. He uh, was greatly admired by South Indians. In 2006, they commemorated the 300-year anniversary of Ziegenbalg mm -hmm. and his arrival in India in, in Tamil Nadu. Mm -hmm. And this was a commemoration that was um, people of all religions came mm -hmm. together to celebrate mm -hmm. uh, Ziegenbalg's legacy. They produced a stamp mm -hmm. with Ziegenbalg's image on it that shows that there was something that everyone could admire about Ziegenbalg. Uh, and one of them is his deep devotion to the study of the Tamil language and his, um, his devotion to the study of Hinduism and his um, willingness to experience life in India like the common folk. He did not live in European quarters and, um, you know, enjoy the niceties of colonial society. He, he, he lived with... Um, uh, the poor, among the poor, and he learned uh, Tamil from children, mm -hmm. uh, according to uh, J. Raj's uh, study. Mm -hmm. And so these aspects of Ziegenbalg greatly endeared him to the local population. Mm -hmm. But there's another aspect of Ziegenbalg that has to be um, recognized, is that Ziegenbalg was deeply committed to evangelism. He was deeply committed to sharing the gospel with um, Hindus and Muslims, and he debated them. He had extensive dialogues with Muslims, extensive dialogues with Hindus, where he challenged Hindu doctrine against uh, the authority of, of the Bible, the Protestant Bible. And he did the same thing with the Quran. So in that respect, uh, Ziegenbalg shares some things in common with the Jesuits, who also debated and also accumulated knowledge. And he also shares something in common with the evangelical Protestants that came a hundred years later, uh, from, largely from England. But what makes him a little bit different from the others is that he did not have the relationship with imperial power that uh, Protestants um, sometimes were perceived as having later on in connection to British rule or East India Company rule. 
and uh, the, the Jesuits with the Padroado, the, the, the royal patronage of the Portuguese. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that Ziegenbog was thrown in prison by, by the Danish uh, king and that he did some time behind bars, that he was really feeling the brunt of colonialism and mm -hmm. it was plain to everybody, it really won people over. And uh, he has a remarkable legacy in South India because of this. Well, thank you for that great answer and enlightening us about uh, Zickenbach and his work and what he represents um, in regards to South Asia's Christianity. Now, the two subsequent chapters highlight the efforts of missionaries, you know, to reach out to the elite uh, which entailed vehement, you know, defenses of the Bible and rebuttals of other, you know, religious scriptures. Now we see here the utilizations of print media, you know, tracts, pamphlets, books, you know, to not only push for the propagation of Christianity, but also being used as a medium to also push back against, you know, Christian agenda by the adher adherence of other religions you know you know we see print culture working both ways in this in this context and though the number of conversions from the upper castes was limited we also see that those who did convert often received either admiration or social criticism in the public domain so for my next question uh dr Manpali, i would like to focus on the latter part you know, that heed the significance of the high caste conversion. You know, this mm -hmm. is quite an important section that you deal with here in, in these, in this uh, rather chapter six. And I was wondering if you could speak more on the spiritual journey of the high caste Hindu convert named Pandita Ram Ramabai. Um, who yeah. you extensively cover. I think you, there is a reason why you do this. And um, mm -hmm. I was wondering if you briefly highlight the unique story of, you know, Panita Ramabai, uh, her move to Protestantism and mm -hmm. the implications of this high caste uh, conversion. So thanks for that question. And I hope uh, readers will find that chapter interesting because mm -hmm. it's very anecdotal and it's yeah. centered upon this extraordinary woman who uh, came from the highest caste of uh, the West, West Indian uh, state of Maharashtra. She was a Maratha Brahmin. She came from a family of itinerant uh, preachers. I mean, uh, people who taught the uh, Puranas, uh, the Hindu sacred texts, this is the epics. She was learned in Sanskrit. Her father insisted that she become educated and uh, as uh, a young adult, she, she went to study in England. And during that time, she underwent a baptism into uh, Anglican Christianity. Mm -hmm. What is extraordinary about Ramabai is that at no point did she permit herself to be completely uh, molded by the mm -hmm. Christian, Christian institutions yeah. of uh, colonial society. So she maintained a consistent dialogue with her heritage and uh, in that respect, she illustrates a distinction that Andrew Walls makes between conversion, uh, becoming a convert and becoming a proselyte. proselyte. Yeah. A convert is someone who um, experiences a turning, um, mm. a, 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 a change in one's religious allegiance according to the terms of their own culture. A proselyte is someone who has been 
flown and coerced into adopting mm. the culture of the colonizer, the culture of the missionary mm. in a comprehensive sort of way. And, and according to the dictates of missionary authority structures, Ramabai throughout her life refused to become a proselyte mm. <laughs> and she pushed back. So she not only uh, exerted the energy to launch herself out of Brahminical Hinduism, but she exerted the energy to differentiate herself from the uh, authoritarian imperial Christianity that, that was mediated to her in, in England. Gradually, Ramabai makes a journey into the heartfelt devotional pietist traditions that we now associate with Pentecostalism, the highly emotional, uh, expressive uh, devotion to Jesus as a personal Lord that um, really occurs in the early 20th century, at this, just as it's occurring in many other parts of the world, this movement of revival, this movement of pietist awakening, Pentecostal awakening in the Azusa Street revival, in the Wales revivals, in the uh, Kasi Hills of Northeast India, and in uh, the Mukti Mission in, in Western India, where that Ramabai had established. Mm -hmm. So there is this steady um, uh, theme, the consistent theme throughout her life of differentiating herself from the Western forms of Christianity and eventually um, entering into a global, a global development, which is this movement into Pentecostalism. Mm -hmm. And in this respect, I think her life reflects and offers a very valuable window into the story of world Christianity. Yeah, is this is this um, same differentiation and this same uh, movement toward a worldwide movement toward the yeah. end? Um, as I was reading this section, it reminded me she is indeed a figure that is very fascinating for future, you know, world Christianity students or you know scholars to do a kind of a close study on. I think yeah. very uh, very. Uh, rich in in what you know provides for world Christianity as a discourse too, um, um, yeah. and I hope that you know our listeners and future readers will also take advantage of that uh, in investigating more on. And we have uh, people like Mira Kasambi uh, mm -hmm. to thank for compiling a lot of her a lot of Ramabai's original writings, so you can yeah. look at them. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Now, um, segueing into the seventh chapter here, which you have titled, you know, Mass Conversion Among Dalits and Tribals, Rupture, Con Continuity, or Uplift. You know, here we are able to take a closer look at what transpired, you know, during the 19th and early 20th centuries, these mass conversions of Dalits or tribals that took Protestant missionaries by surprise. Um, and if I may clarify, quickly clarify here, in the beginning paragraphs of this chapter, you define mass conversions as, quote, contexts in which an entire village, caste community, or network of families made a collective decision to undertake baptism and join the Christian religion, end quote. And when talking about issues of conversion, especially mass conversions that you treat in this chapter, you know, it is imperative that we also question motives uh, mm -hmm. and the differences between, you know, rupture and continuity. Mm -hmm. um, something that my advisor, Dr. Richard Fox Young, mm -hmm. also, you know, has really um, helped me, you know, grasp a hold of as well. 
But here in this chapter, uh, we are exposed to three unique contexts of mass conversion movements that you treat, Dr. Malampali. First, it is the Telugu uh, mass conversion. Second is the conversion amongst the Nagas, the Mizos of Northeast India. And finally, the third section is the mass conversions of Chamars and Churas in the mm -hmm. Punjab. You know, just talking about all three mass conversion movements might take an entire podcast. So I would like to just focus on discussing one of them, if, if I may. Um, Dr. Malampali, would you tell us more about the Telugu mass conversion, the first one that took place, you know, during a time of famine? Who were these, you know, Tamil and Telugu speaking converts and what significance and in a way also criticism uh, did this mass conversion have? And, mm -hmm. you know, how did it contribute to how missionaries, you know, also talk about caste as well? You know, we see this a conversation taking place, you know, you know, uh, taking a big step into this. So please, uh, Dr. Malampali. Well, the, the Telugu conversions that happened in the 1870s and 80s took place during a, a very, very massive famine. And so missionaries did uh, offer valuable relief to depressed communities that did not have access to food otherwise and, and medical aid, et cetera. And so this played a part in their desire to become Christian because they were receiving not only material aid, but um, a sense of care from uh, missionary agencies. One of the important figures in this whole uh, story that I pay attention to in that chapter is John Clough, the American missionary to Telugu country, who um, found a way of incorporating members of uh, Madiga communities, Mala communities into his work projects and into his um, missionary uh, settings where they received uh, a lot of care. And it was uh, pretty remarkable how uh, he had a way of affirming them and um, not uh, excluding them on the basis of their, their caste. Mm -hmm. They were considered to be polluted castes, and so they were excluded from uh, many social circles mm -hmm. in South India. They occupied some of the most menial positions in, in uh, Indian society associated with uh, the uh, removal of animals from roadways, dead animals, and the consumption of carrion. And so uh, when they became Christian, uh, it, there was this change in terms of their sense of dignity and their sense of uh, self-understanding, that they were not polluted people. They were children of God like everyone else. And that was a, an important motivation for them to become Christian. It is um, indisputable that social uplift and uh, the desire for emancipation, social emancipation, was part of the motivation to become Christian among Dalits as well. And that should not come as any surprise. Uh, if, 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 if a religion uh, teaches that uh, you, you are a loved person, you are... Um, eternally valuable like anyone else. This is something that is going to pro provide a very compelling alternative mm -hmm. to a self-perception of being polluted or degraded. Mm -hmm. And so this becomes a part of the motivation for people to become Christian, which is inseparable from the, um, 
the accessibility of, of education, of, uh, of food, and of medical services that were brought by missionaries. And this becomes a very controversial issue, uh, especially among opponents of Christianity in, in India, that the incentives for becoming Christian are purely uh, material and that these are, uh, pro- these are, these are rice Christians yeah. and they aren't authentic Christians. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so the question is, uh, what, what constitutes authenticity when we're talking about the poorest of the poor? Yeah. And why do we presume that authenticity does not, um, that, that it precludes this material element that um, a religion can provide? And so the, this is a very timely issue in India today with yeah. um, the, the, the laws that are being passed that, that uh, outlaw conversions by inducement or by force or by fraud, mm-hmm. uh, this presumption that people are being offered um, mm-hmm. jobs and money and uh, education in exchange for changing their religion in this highly utilitarian way. And uh, in the mass movements, it wasn't quite so crudely utilitarian. And people not only actively sought baptism, but they actively sought Christian instruction. And uh, the other issue is that um, the missionary societies were so understaffed, they did not have enough trained people to meet this, this, this huge yeah. demand. And that, those are the stories that come out of that chapter. Hmm. Thank you for that answer. You know, in a way, building on this previous question on, you know, this Dalit mass conversion, you know, I wanted to direct my next question specifically on Dalit Christian theology. Hmm. Um, I know your book is not a theological exploration. However, I think you provide some vital information, you know, um, concerning the contextual, the historical, and the social political pieces, you know, that help readers be- get a better grasp on Dalit Christianity or Dalit theology. Mm-hmm. For our listeners who might be unfamiliar to Dalit theology, do you mind just briefly touching upon how Dalit Christian theology emerged, you know, and what Dalit theology is committed to? Um, if I, you would like to just add just a little bit also at the end, you know, you also in this chapter, I think it was chapter nine, if I'm not mistaken, um, you you differentiate between two important figures in India, Gandhi and Ambedkar. Um, uh, and you talk about how, you know, where Dalit Christians resonate more with, who they resonate more with. And if you would like to touch upon that and why too, um, that would be wonderful as well. Well, there are three very important tropes in Dalit Christian theology. One of them is the identification with the suffering Christ. And so there is this connection that is drawn between their own oppression and their own sense of being broken and crushed, which is actually the meaning of the word Dalit, and the brokenness and crushedness of Christ's body. And so Dalit theology has uh, identified Jesus as someone who shares their life experience, someone who understands their brokenness and uh, humiliation, not simply at the hands of power, but at the hands of re- the religious establishment of, their day, of his day. So just as Jesus was tried and, and crucified um, 
in his context, Dalits are victims of atrocities, victims of uh, physical violence and beatings at the hands of landlords, at the hands of upper castes, and are excluded from religious institutions on the basis of their polluted um, condition. Mm -hmm. And so there is this strong identification with Jesus in Dalit Christian theology that resembles um, some, some tropes in African-American theology as well, thinking of the work of James Cone and his um, reflections on, on lynching and, and the lynch uh, Christ as the prototype of the lynched body of the African-American body. So Jesus is the prototype of Dalits as well. The other aspects of Dalit Christian theology that are very important is simply uh, a vocalization, uh, a creation of space for the recognition of Dalit experience, hmm. the Dalit experience of, of the stigma of untouchability, the Dalit experience of exclusion and, and violence. And so not only those experiences, but the symbolic resources that are available to Dalits in their village life, the beating of the drum, the use of folklore and song, mm -hmm. those uh, are recognized in Dalit theology as valuable cultural material from which theological expressions should be drawn. Mm -hmm. And so um, a theologian named Satyanathan Clark wrote a, wrote a book called Christ as the Drum that uh, you know, the, the, the Jesus Christ, the Logos was actually incarnate. It was actually present in, in Dalit experience through their beating of the drum, what mm -hmm. they had to do when they had to announce that they were coming into a neighborhood yeah. or the beating of the drum at a, at a funeral ceremony. Mm -hmm. And um, another uh, ethnomusicologist, ethno uh, Zoe Sherinian, wrote a lot about the, the, the importance of music and fol folklore in, in Dalit theology. So these are some ways that um, Dalit Christianity expresses itself. And it's, it's because of this sense that the forms of Christianity that were, that were dominant in, in India were largely formulations that came from upper castes who, who occupied an entirely different social space from them. And so there was this need for, for a move uh, in this direction. Well, thank you for that detailed insight into Dalit theology. Um, I can't believe we've already come now to the last chapter of your book, which focuses on a trending theme in world Christianity discourse, which I think I mentioned is the growth of Pentecostal churches. Here in this final chapter, Dr. Malampali, you walk us through, you know, its contributing factors, the local and the global factors that have, you know, fueled the movements, you know, from its inception to the present day in India. And what grabbed my attention in this section on Pentecostals in India being, you know, disproportionately targeted in acts of anti-Christian violence, also in relation to the rise of Hindu nationalism and Pentecostal's tendency to draw attention. So do you mind sharing more on this anti-Christian violence and issues of Hindutva in connection with, you know, Pentecostalism in South Asia? Over the last several years, there's been a real surge in violence directed against Christians. It is not restricted to Pentecostals. There are Roman Catholic churches that are attacked. There are um, other uh, Christian pastors and denominations who are attacked. But the majority of people who are attacked are P 
people who are Pentecostal and are people who are engaged in some form of propagation of their religion. And Pentecostals are very committed to propagating Christianity uh, through various means. Um, but this is a particular time when a coalition of organizations in India is working hand in hand with the government of India in establishing India as a Hindu nation. And an aspect of that agenda of Hindutva is to really clamp down on religious conversions uh, and uh, clamp down on uh, the growth of any religion perceived to be not of non-Indian origin. So Muslims are, are highly uh, oppressed under uh, the regime of uh, Prime Minister Modi, mm -hmm. uh, the BJP, the Bharatiya Janata Party, but also increasingly Christians are objects of vilification and violence. Uh, and Pentecostals are bearing the brunt of this violence. There are a couple of reasons why that have been offered why Pentecostals, Pentecostals are uniquely susceptible to these attacks. Mm. One of them, um, which is developed in uh, a, a recent study by Chad Bowman, is that Pentecostals are attacked because of what he calls their rhetoric of rupture, that they uh, emphasize the radical difference between being a Christian and being a part of their former religion. And so Pentecostals, um, he claims, engage in direct attacks of other religions and um, understand their, their posture toward Indian society as one of spiritual warfare and uh, uh, warfare against uh, demonic forces. Mm -hmm. um, another reason, though, why Pentecostals are attacked um, is very different from this. And it's what I suggest is a more uh, dominant, uh, a more pervasive pattern. And, and, and that is that Pentecostals are attacked because they actually attract. <laughs> they attract people to their movement because they offer a set of goods that are reached for by many different classes of Indians, a sense of belonging, mm. a sense of warmth and acceptance, a sense of celebration in worship that is very positive. It's a very positive energy. And so you do have a deep resentment of the potential for demographic growth. People don't grow by attacking other religions. And I've been to many, many Pentecostal services in the state of Kerala. I'm not from Kerala, but I did ethnographic work in Kerala. I visited it many times, many Pentecostal churches. On no occasion have I heard a pastor having the audacity to attack Hinduism or attack any aspect of another religion. It was some exposition of a, of, of a biblical passage and some declaration of the power of Jesus over the demonic realm. And what's also important to note is that Pentecostalism actually shares quite a bit in common with village Hinduism. There is this belief in the demonic realm that is very real, it affects human health, it affects, affects human happiness. And so there isn't a, a rupture with village Hinduism. There is a streamlining of Pentecostalism with village Hinduism and the demonology of village Hinduism. Only the difference is that Pentecostals say Jesus is, the, um, is supreme over the demonic realm and has the capacity to deliver people from spirits that affect family life and affect personal health. 
And so this is a very important distinction to be made between Pentecostals and the 19th century evangelicals who did attack other religions in this formal, explicit sort of way and were guided by rational, uh, critical uh, approaches to religion. And, um, and so this, this becomes a very, very important dynamic to observe that Pentecostalism is growing in the global South just as Hindu nationalism is asserting itself in these very, very poignant and aggressive ways. And that's talked about in chapter 10. Of course. And thank you for that detailed answer, Dr. Malampali. I think just by our conversations today alone uh, in this brief uh, 60 minutes, um, I think our listeners are, you know, um, exposed to a wide richness of, of resources and topics that, you know, we just have, I think, hopefully um, just touch a glimpse of um, within your book. And I hope our future uh, readers can, you know, dive into your work and also um, use the extensive resources that you provide at the end that you, by the bibliography uh, to do further research regarding South Asia's Christianity. Um, as we end today's interview, Dr. Malampali, there is one final question that I would, I would like to ask my guests, and that is, do you mind sharing with us about your current and future projects and what you hope to work on so that our listeners can continue to follow uh, up and update on your work and you know continue to read more about what you write as well? Well, uh, that's a great question. I. I wish I could just say um, I'm taking a break for a while because that, that last book was was quite a, a load off my back. <laughs> but I, I, there are a couple questions that really interest me, and one of them relates to uh, Christians and cosmopolitanism. Mm-hmm. In what sense um, do Christian theologies and Christian rituals um, enable a capacity for world citizenship? and um, engagement with the world around us? And in what sense do theologies promote closure and and rigid boundaries and uh, a culture war paradigm for relating to the other? And I'm very intrigued by the stories that come out of not only South Asian Christian experience, but also um, Christians in diasporic communities and their relationship with host societies. So I hope to look at um, Christians in... Gulf countries and mm-hmm. Christians in um, the United Kingdom, Christians mm-hmm. in the United, United States, and how they relate to uh, members of other religions and how their theologies affect how they relate. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Malapali, that sounds like a great project, and I look forward to reading more of your works. Uh, once again, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and having this conversation with me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your your hospitality and your attentiveness to uh, this conversation. Yeah. And thank you, everyone, so much for listening to today's episode in which we explored South Asia's Christians between Hindu and Muslim, written by Chandra Malampali and published by Oxford University Press in 2023. This is your host, Byung-ho Choi, and stay tuned for the next episode on new books on world Christianity.